On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Pretty varied stories uh, across the front pages of this morning's newspapers. We'll start with the Irish Mail on Sunday today. Age limit on mental health medicines is illegal. Um, you might remember a lot of the reporting in the Irish Mail on Sunday over the last few weeks about the state trying to stand over things which it seemed the state was uh, fully aware of the illegalities of same. Uh, today is another story uh, based on disclosures um, by uh, the Department of Health worker Shane uh, Corr who has disclosed some memos to the Mail on Sunday. To the effect that teenagers over the age of 16 and adults with mental illnesses are being denied free medication because the state has refused to correct defective legislation. Uh, Leaked documents obtained by the Irish Mail on Sunday show that the government has known that legislation under which only those under 16 with a mental illness are entitled to free medication is discriminatory and legally unsound for more than a decade. The revelation will heap further pressure on the coalition, which has come under fire in recent weeks after this newspaper uncovered details of a secret legal strategy to block nurse home free refunds for people who paid for private bends while no public ones were available. That's the front page of the Mail on Sunday. We might talk more about that in a few minutes' time. Uh, the Sunday Times uh, two stories on the front page of the Sunday Times uh, a guard inquiry into a former GAA star who was under investigation for alleged fraud and deception has been expanded as new witnesses have claimed to be victims uh, detectives believe that the sports star who was accused of seeking payments and loans to help to pay for injections of stem cells to help treat a cancer at a clinic in America approached a wider group of people over a much longer time than was previously thought uh, the suspect has yet to be arrested or interviewed but Gardy seized his mobile phone and documents during a search of a hotel room where he was staying in December. Officers were searching the former player's bank records to identify any large and unexplained deposits in the last decade. Uh, The main story on the Sunday Times is about the golden visa scheme uh, which was uh, suspended abruptly by the cabinet this week. The legality of funds provided by mostly Chinese applicants to Ireland's visas for investment scheme couldn't be verified reports John Mooney this morning, sparking fears of money laundering and tax evasion, which led to its closure last week. The scheme through which 1,547 visas were granted between 2012 and 2022 is the subject of a criminal investigation by the Gardaí. Another 1,500 applications are being considered. Vulnerabilities in the programme, which is officially called the Immigrant Investor Programme, were identified by officials in the Department of Justice as far back as 2019. An internal review concluded that insufficient checks were carried out to ensure that the applicants were not involved in terrorism or crime. Uh, on that note, uh, on the same, uh, there's, there's more coverage about that programme elsewhere in the papers. Uh, the front page of the Business Post has three stories. Uh, Ireland's housing crisis is beginning to restrict the country's economic growth as multinational firms struggle to convince staff to take up jobs in professional services here, according to a senior business leader. Michael McAteer, who's managing partner of Grant Thornton, says up to 30% of the international recruits that his firm offered contracts to last year turned down the job uh, due to the housing shortage. Um, Also on the front page of the Business Post, the new cost of living package to be announced this week will expand the temporary business energy support scheme, TBES, in a sign that last year's efforts to increase or ease inflationary pressures of businesses didn't go as expected. Uh, The government uh, has publicly admitted that it only has gotten a fraction of the applications that it expected to for that scheme. Um, And also in the front of the Business Post, the Ladies Gaelic Football Association is to appoint legal and medical experts to assess applications from transgender women who want to play the sport, according to a policy document ratified last week. Uh, And finally for now, the Sunday Independent 
the billionaire Dennis O'Brien has been contacted by Gardaí investigating uh, the aforementioned former GAA star who allegedly uh, sought hundreds of thousands of euro from people under false pretenses. Uh, Mr O'Brien is understood to be one of a number of people who were allegedly tapped for money uh, by, the le- by the leading but now retired sportsman in recent years claiming that it was either a loan or to pay for his cancer treatment. The former GAA star uh, asked Mr O'Brien for money and other financial supports and is also believed to have asked him to fund medical treatment. Mr O'Brien provided the funds according to a source who declined to put a figure on the amount However, the sums involved are believed to run into the tens of thousands. Uh, that is your tour of the stories making the front pages um, of this morning's newspapers. To discuss those stories and more, join a studio by Barrister Peter Leonard, who is the presenter of the legal podcast The Fifth Court, and by Michelle Murphy, who is a research and policy advisor at Social Justice Ireland. Uh, good morning to you both. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, one common theme which I didn't say across the photographs uh, on the front pages and inside the papers are a lot of people who were attending the march in Dublin yesterday the anti-racism demo uh, challenging uh, the far-right narrative that migrants were responsible for a lot of Ireland's economic and social problems um, there's a lot of coverage across that Michelle uh, good morning to you and welcome to the show uh, where do you want to start in your, your assessment of a lot of the coverage across that this morning good morning Gavin I suppose I'll start with the mail on Sunday actually there's a two-page spread there looking at I suppose Number one, a really cons- a report from John Brennan that there's no plan for the thousands of refugees who soon become homeless mm. as the state contracts with, I suppose, uh, B&Bs and hotels are, which are, you know, going to, to end in March and what's going to happen they say between about 10,000, 14,000 of the beds provided are no longer going to be available due mm. to the, the tourism boom. And there doesn't seem to be any plan to deal with that. And, you know, they're talking about, um, you know, more tented accommodation and that it's crisis management um, and that they have run out of space, basically. And then alongside of that, you have a report about uh, from Nicola Byrne that some far right groups are looking to target the St. Patrick's Day parade. And what I thought was really interesting here, she quotes um, uh, Maliki Steenson and he's... She's involved in organising the protest in East Wall. East yeah. Wall, yes. And what I found interesting, you know, he, he says he's representing uh, the ordinary people who've been ignored by the political class, the NGOs, the decent working class people. And yet he's really targeting the television coverage at the St. Patrick's Day parade, according to himself in terms of, I suppose, mm. global recognition. But I didn't really see... I did, you know, I didn't see him marching against any other the social imbalances prior to the crisis we've had yeah. here. I certainly didn't see them up front looking in terms of for the past since 2010 in terms of dealing with the housing crisis, dealing with issues such as poverty, inequality. So I, I find it interesting also that I suppose we're almost having a perfect storm. If there wasn't a single person in this country seeking international protection or fleeing war in Ukraine, you would still have the same challenges. You can't get GPs, particularly in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Housing, we're at crisis point the health system is creaking at the scenes seems things like public transport so those are the things really we have to deal with those are the things government has to deal with and they also you know really need to deal with the I suppose this this misinformation that Joe O'Brien there's an interview with Joe O'Brien in the Sunday Mm. Independent as well and he's talking about the misinformation online and they really need to take control of this because yeah. they're the people who should be delivering uh, the response. I'll come back to the, the misinformation bit maybe a bit later on and I might re- return to the, the question about the St. Patrick's Day Parade in just a second but just when you mentioned that Malachi Steenson uh, wrote off yesterday's event as being uh, something by the political class and the NGO class um, is there something to that? I mean I've seen a lot of criticism about yesterday's event that it was uh, although organised by a large coalition of bodies that many of the bodies involved are bodies which are largely reliant on, on the state for its funding anyway and that the 
to, to their mind that yesterday's event was a kind of a corporatized state-sponsored event rather than it being any kind of a grassroots demonstration in solidarity with those coming to the country? Well, so what was an event? It was an event to say in a march to say, you know, people are welcome. Refugees are welcome. And I suppose uh, the organisers thought this was perhaps the, the best way to perhaps show solidarity and show the people you know, either people coming to this country and also the people who already live here, that they actually are welcome. But I think that's a one-off event. That's a march. If you're really going to get to grips with the problem, government really needs to take leadership here. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of criticism for the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman. But when you look at the, the number of elements in his department that he's responsible for, you would imagine that the Department of Taoiseach, for example, should Mm. be taking a coordinating role on this. And I do think maybe this should be a starting point now in dealing with some of the misinformation that you've said, but also dealing with those crisis issues, such as where we're going to house these people, Mm. how we're going to house them. We know we could have potentially 70,000 additional people by the end of this year, if you look at the figures from the, the Department of Health, for example, how we're going to, you know, get get them both GP services, mental health services. Are we going to keep them in group accommodation, for example, or will they be able to move on, you know, to more, I suppose, own door, front door accommodation? How we're going to deal with the, the 10 yeah. to 14,000 people, you know, who potentially by March we, we should be seeking accommodation for. And what is the plan where I suppose what we're not seeing is the political leadership on this. It shouldn't be up to civil society organisations to address these long standing social imbalances that mm. have existed, you know, well in a in well beyond, I suppose, since this time last year when we really saw the influx of people fleeing war in Ukraine. I mean, these problems existed long yeah. before that. And I suppose I would be concerned that we're, you know, we're not seeing that political leadership from government saying this is the plan and this is how we're going to do. You have a minister out, was it two weeks ago, he sent a letter to all his departmental colleagues looking for accommodation. Yeah. And then you seem to have other people from other government parties almost briefing against him. So where is, I suppose, the coordination across government to deal with this? Um, Peter Leonard, your, your thoughts on whether the, the government is... Well, I was going to put this as a kind of a binary choice of either or, but it it could well be both, that the government just is unable to communicate with people or has chosen not to communicate with people or the government doesn't really know what its own plan is. And it's it's possible that both could be true. In terms of dealing with migrants? Yes, or or what it's going to do about the the volume of people who may find themselves soon becoming homeless because the accommodation that they're in is going to be returned to the tourist market. Yes, well, I mean, look, I think as we come up to the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine, and obviously that has resulted in so many people coming into the country. I mean, I think in fairness to the government, it is a massive issue. They've had to provide accommodation in circumstances where we have a housing crisis, where there are problems. And I think there have been a lot of initiatives where old hotels around the country have been used as temporary accommodation. You eventually run out of that. And obviously you have to make uh, long-term plans. But You know, construction, we know, takes time. You know, providing accommodation for people isn't something that you can just conjure up like that. So I think I think it is a challenge. There must be a coordinated plan. I fully accept what Michelle says. I mean, it is it falls to the government to address this issue. I think we as a society have been very generous in relation to Ukrainian uh, migrants coming in uh, who've had to flee that war zone. Maybe we need to be a bit more broad minded in relation to other migrants coming from other parts of the world who come to Ireland. Um, Can we be broader minded though when we are evidently struggling to find accommodation and the necessary ancillary services for those that are already here? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that is an issue. I mean, we, 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 we have an obligation to look after our own, but we also have an international obligation to look after people who need support. And if you're fleeing a war zone, and we know what the conflict in Ukraine is like, people mm. have to get out of that country, they have to try and build lives elsewhere. We as a country are a wealthy country. We are a country with resources. Yes, we can't seem to address our problems, uh, you know, to the level that we want to address them, because there is issues in relation to uh, cost of living crisis. Yeah. There's issues in relation to accommodation. But can I just say, in relation to the the protest yesterday, sure. I thought looking at the coverage, uh, what was wonderful about them was that it was. It, I thought it was very much public centric. You know, it wasn't politically led. It was politically led in the sense that the usual politicians, etc., were there, mm. and maybe I suppose more the parties of the left. But um, this was kind of members of the public coming out and you know showing solidarity with with migrants that have come in. And what I loved, what I loved, was the fact that when they got to the the final place, when the March came to an end. Mm. Who got up on the stage and sang but Christy Moore? Mm. And I think Christy Moore has been at everything going back to Carnesore Point. I can remember back just that far, uh, all those campaigns over the years. He's always the man at, on the stage. And that's kind of, I, I think when he gets up and he sings a few songs on the trailer at the end of the march, mm. it's reflective, I think, of a public mood rather than something that is deeply political. And that's important, yeah. I think, when we've had all those protests, um, anti-immigration protests, the small little protests that have happened in various sure. different locations. Uh, it might well be the case, actually, that was one of the larger crowds that Christy Moore has, has performed to in the last while. Not because he's, he's unpopular, <laughs> but because he tends to prefer smaller venues now that he's often in Vicar Street and he's only playing to a few hundred people or maybe a couple of thousand people at a time. But there was an estimated uh, thirty to 50,000 people um, at that uh, demonstration yesterday at its peak. So it might, might well have been uh, one of the bigger crowds that he's seen uh, in person in quite a while. Um, going back to, to what Michelle was, was observing there a few moments ago about the prospect of far-right groups targeting the St. Patrick's Day parade. Um, there's a bit of me on a purely strategic level that kind of wonders how, how productive or counterproductive that would so be for their crazy. goals because Sounds that's crazy. something which is held in such high esteem by so many members of the public yeah, that if you made that occasion. as an explicitly occasion. political thing it would be pretty damaging to your cause, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that that sounds absolutely crazy. I mean, you know, the great thing is that there wasn't trouble on the streets yesterday because there could have been clashes if, you know, certain certain organisations came out to try and protest against, against the march yesterday. Mm. But I mean, why would you take on the St. Patrick's Day parade? I mean, it's something that is beloved of Irish people. It's an opportunity for families to go into the city and have a lovely day out. And then for these guys to come out and start protesting, I can't see how that would be beneficial to their cause. Mm. Uh, says Malachy Steenson in that piece today uh, in the Mail on Sunday, uh, Michelle, I think a lot of people will see it, th- their counter-protest that they're planning for Patrick's Day as a counter-protest to what passes for the Patrick's Day parade it looks like it's gay pride too I think people will come along for that reason as well he says um, that's a if well it's one label that you could put on the St. Patrick's Day parade I don't think many people would agree with it but for, for that to be the thing that people would come out to march against yeah, I don't know I find it I suppose quite it, it's a very well. It's a very culture warsy reason to try yeah, and get people out, rather than it being anti-immigration. It, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like oh, here, here's another culture war. If you don't like this type of parade, why don't we come out and pro- protest against it? If, you know, for example, if you don't like gay pride parade, here's gay pride too, and let's protest against that. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, as you know, as Peter rightly pointed out, the whole point of St. Patrick's Day Parade, it's a family occasion and it's a family occasion up and down the country. But it's also a day where it's showcased across our screens, the the parade in Dublin. I also think just the logistical challenge, 
given the logistical challenge of walking around the city yeah. on St. Patrick's Day and St. <laughs> Patrick's Day weekend, even trying to cross the street can be hugely challenging. Yes, so yeah. I don't know how they're going to uh, create their counter protests. But I suppose to me that also, I suppose, shines a bit of light into, you know, what what do those groups really want? I mean, is it migrants or is there other things that they, they're mm. not too happy with as well? Because it just seems to be a hodgepodge of things at the moment. Um and I find that concerning. And I read the interview with uh, Joe O'Brien with Ali Bracken in the the Sunday Independent as well. The minute who's the now he's also got responsibility for integration, and he was talking about the whole thing about the disinformation online and misinformation online and mm. how we need to counteract that. But I do think government needs to be much stronger on that because there is so much people just. It's not something I suppose that they've had to promote hugely as to, for example, even which department is responsible for housing asylum yeah. seekers you know it is the Department of Integration it's not the Department of so there's two mm. so, there's, so people who were marching yesterday were, were ultimately marched to Custom House which is the home of the Department of Housing but it's actually not yeah, the Department I mean, of Housing which is responsible their, for housing them yeah the Department of Housing is obviously responsible for our own housing issue in terms of delivering social housing affordable yeah. housing home. but when it comes to people seeking asylum and international protection the department responsibility is Minister O'Gorman's department and I suppose even just communicating those issues to the public I think is really important and I think you know I did mention leadership and I, that's why I really think government does need to t- show some real leadership on this issue and be coordinated because at the moment for from you know me sitting here reading the papers but also listening to the policy discussions around this the lack of coordination seems to be hugely challenging mm-hmm. um, Briefly Peter um, on, on that uh, interview with uh, Joe O'Brien on page 10 today of the Sunday Independent where he's talking about the need to counter uh, misinformation and disinformation he accepts that several factors including the cost of living high rents and not enough housing have led to support in some communities for those anti-immigration rallies um, given that Joe O'Brien is a member of a government party and his very party uh, contended to be an organiser or affiliated to yesterday's march the Green Party trying to have their cake and eat it yeah um by being, by being notionally responsible for the same social ills that are leading to the, the, the sort of demonstrations that they're trying yeah, to counter. But I mean, look, I mean, I think we all know that in society there are always going to be some social social ills. I'm not trying to defend the government in relation to that, but I mean, you can't solve everything straight away. Um, look, people will always play on discontent. And, you know, we have a, a society in Ireland where people are very comfortable and we have people that are struggling with the cost of living and we have a housing crisis. And we have situations where maybe in certain towns and certain places there's a disproportionate amount of migrants coming in and that that can be played upon. Those fears can be played upon. That's as old as history. That has always happened. Mm. Uh, And it's happening in Ireland now. I I mean, I think the whole thing about the far right is massively overstated. I think it's a very, very small organisation. I even think when we're talking about this disruption that they're trying to cause to the St. Patrick's Day parade, Mm. they seem to be very, I mean, they they don't have a coherent philosophy. Uh, You saw that gentleman, Tommy Robinson, maybe I shouldn't mention his name because we're probably no. giving him giving him attention that he probably doesn't deserve but even that has provoked kind of you know discontent within according to the papers today within the far right groups some of them are in favour of them some of them are not in favour of them mm. uh, and even though it's a fairly minuscule I think organisation maybe it is growing I don't see it growing I still think it's a very very minor uh, section in Irish society uh, it would appear that they're even not on the same page in relation to yeah. that uh, so I, I think I think look there will always be people who generate discontent 
extent who play to people's fears. I mean, that, that goes back to, as I said, we, we've seen that right throughout history. Uh, and it is happening in Ireland that there are people struggling and there are people who are under pressure uh, and there are people on the margins of society who feel they get a raw deal and then they see other people coming in and people play to that and that happens. I still don't think it's a huge issue and that's why I think that the march that took place yesterday, 50,000 people walking through the city of Dublin in a friendly style atmosphere, um, you know, it, when, you, when, you, when you match that against those uh, pr- protests that have been taken and have to be taken mm, seriously, I'm yes, not saying mm. that they're, they're, they shouldn't be taken seriously, they must be taken seriously, but I think that the 50,000 yesterday when, when matched against that is, is very significant. Uh, and yet, uh, one texter, Matty texts in so far through on a six to say that the, those groups that the contributors have been referring to represent the silent majority of the country not apparently the 50,000 people who may have showed up uh, on the streets of the capital well, yesterday. Well let's see I mean if we if we have elections down the line are they going to run candidates mm-hmm. are people going to get an opportunity to go out and vote for them that's when we'll see whether you know the colour of their money is there a silent majority out there yeah. I don't believe there is. The local elections 15 months away uh, and by the way because um, obviously one of the, the um, sources of the, the number of people coming to the country in the last 12 months is of course the war in Ukraine we'll be discussing that a little bit more uh, later in the hour uh, we were just discussing during the ad break that in fact €21,473.28 would go quite a deal uh, at the moment given the cost of living concerns that there are and that of course teases up very nicely um, to the announcements coming from the government this week about its um, revised cost of living package Um, quite a bit of coverage as you would expect across the papers Uh, Peter we'll start with yourself anything that jumps out with you uh, about the extent of the coverage across the papers today Yeah well the one one thing I saw was that um, Minister Eamon Ryan seems to be going after the energy companies and he's talking about the fact that wholesale prices on in natural gas and the international markets have come down substantially mm. and yet those savings are not being passed on to the public uh, and the government seems to be you know still giving those subvention payments but they're not doing enough to get the energy companies to, to bring down their prices which I, I would have thought would be a very significant contribution to the cost of living crisis mm. at the moment um, he seems to be asking them to do something rather than kind of convening meetings getting people together uh, and pushing them into a situation where something is done um, and it often seems to be the case when, when costs come down and those those savings are supposed to be passed on to the public mm. um, I'm, I'm you know it, it, it doesn't seem to happen so I think I think that's one of the issues I mean there is a cost of living crisis uh, life is very expensive for a lot of people at the moment uh, the government are going to introduce a package of measures uh, next week um, is it just sticking plaster stuff I mean you know it's 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 it's, it's hard to know yeah. are they going to change things they're they're temporary solutions, they're small solutions. I mean, in themselves, they're not really going to change people's lives dramatically. Um, you know, I think, I think, I think, I think a wider approach is required. Yeah, um, Michelle, actually, th- does it feel to you at this point that it will be a, a sticking plaster, or do you still have some hope that there might well be something more meaningful that will help people to, to not just feel like they're living hand to mouth for the next eight months until the um, next budget? Not hugely, not between reading um, Wayne O'Connor's story in the Sunday Independent today about save money. You know that they want to save government wants to save money later in the year and uh, Daniel Murray's piece in the Business Post he's got a, a significant piece looking at what's potentially there and really it looks like more of the same from the budget as in you know one-off double payments for low-income households which really does not address the problem of income adequacy which I mean we're long on the record of saying uh, we, you have the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council stating you know that these supports need to be targeted um, but uh, to those households most in need, 
if a double payment really okay while welcome you know it's an additional income it's a one-off payment and once it's gone those people are back Hmm. to the same situation and it's you know lone parent households houses with a person with a disability older people living alone and people who are unemployed the fact is they don't have an adequate income even for a basic standard of living the way you resolve that is you look at um, your core social welfare payments looking at this it looks like the VAT rate is going back up for the hospitality sector mm. reading through the papers which the government effectively making the argument that it, it can't forego the estimated half a billion euro that it could yeah. use that money then for other cost of living supports and as Peter said I mean you could certainly question whether that reduced VAT rate has been passed on to the consumer mm. you know in recent years I suppose there's a difference between and I suppose that's what the industry have been trying to to point out the difference between maybe the hotel sector and the, I suppose, the food and hospitality sector, but it is questionable whether it's been where it has been passed on. It looks like that is going to go. Um, it does seem that there does seem to be a question now, and we've been on the record that you know the four hundred million euro for the universal energy credit is mm. a significant amount of money. That would be one point six billion. That's not targeted at all in a time when you have a cost of living yeah, crisis. Th- there's an argument to be made that the so when the government did that first when it was over 12 months ago the government would have said uh, this is something that we need to roll out and it's kind of a, a brute force thing mm-hmm. because we haven't had time to design something a little bit more targeted. Um, one presumes that if they thought they were going to be renewing it that they would have gone away and designed something that would have been a little more targeted rather than just rolling out the same 200 euro again. Not that anyone would ever want to turn it down, of course. No, and that was that was the argument at the time when it was criticised that, they, you know, they really didn't have time, but it's almost like a sense of deja vu. I mean, here we are again, 12 months later, our second cost of living budget and we have another announcement on a, on a cost of living package. I mean, you have highly talented, very well-paid civil servants across a variety of departments. And are you really telling telling me that they cannot come up with mm. a way to target. If you want to target the middle income households, you can target them. There's people there who can do that. But to spend money again and again and again on a universal credit, I mean, to me, it, you know, there's ways to target households yeah. on welfare and households and employment without using that kind of money on an untargeted scheme that really, when at other times we're con- consistently told, you know, we finite fiscal resources, we need to target our resources, we need to be careful with our resources. Mm. I mean, this is not being careful with your resources. It, it, and it, it does make me wonder, Peter, and at risk of repeating the same question that I put to you about uh, immigration in part one, is it that the government um, doesn't necessarily plan to, or it keeps kind of stumbling into crisis? and having to find itself doing responses you know on the hoof or is it that the government maybe is a little bit detached from the concerns because it strikes me that you know you could have made the argument 18 months ago when the first energy credit was being floated around yes this is a brute force mechanism because we haven't had time to try and sculpt something more targeted and the fact that they're still considering it now 15 or 18 months onwards for a fourth time without having gone away to the drawing board and found something a little bit more targeted would lend some credence to the idea that they don't really know what they're doing yeah, I, I mean, I think that you could argue that. Um, you could also say that things fluctuate, Gavin. Do you know what I mean? The world changes. So, for example, uh, the hospitality VAT rate increase. I mean, that was given, you know, at a difficult time uh, as a result of COVID. Hotels were struggling. Restaurants were struggling. And I've heard the various different interest groups coming on and saying, oh, this is terrible. You can't take this away from us. We're all struggling. We can't get staff. We can't pay our way and the cost of energy, etc. And then we saw, I think, a big talking points during the week 
was uh, that list of drinks prices in Temple Bar. Did you see yes, that? A pint yeah. of Guinness was nine euros or whatever. And people are kind of looking at this and they're thinking, you know what? Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a difference. You'll get the Healy Rays coming on in Kerry and they'll talk about some pub up the country that's mm. having a very difficult time. But well, I mean, there, there, are available. There, <laughs> there are people making money and, you know, hospitality, I think, has returned. So, I mean, it, the, the state needs to recover revenue from them. So that, that increases is, is important. Yeah. So I just, that's an example of how things change. You need to respond to, let's say, a COVID type scenario. Mm. And then when things settle down again, you change. Now, in terms of energy crisis, I mean, I think a lot of that emerged from the Ukraine war and mm. difficulties with supply, et cetera, et cetera. And that has, it, it, it didn't seem to be as bad as it was. No. And as I said earlier, the, the natural gas prices on the world markets are coming down a little bit. So so maybe a long-term strategy is required. Well, on, on the note of energy prices, actually, and I, I always am I'm reluctant to bamboozle people with too many facts and figures when they can't see them in front of them at 11.35 on, on a Sunday morning. But I've just pulled up some figures from uh, what's called a SEMOPX. It's the, the power exchange for the single electricity market operator. It's basically the wholesale market at which energy providers buy and sell power to each other to make sure that they're all capable of, of meeting their consumers' needs. And the average price for a megawatt hour of electricity across 2022 was 225 euro. That's 66% up uh, than it was for all of 2021. So you can see the obvious impact of the war in Ukraine and how it's created shortages and how that's pushed it up. Um, on a month-by-month basis, in December, the price for a megawatt hour of electricity was 276 euro, which is higher than the year previous when it was 250. Of course, it always peaks around December because people have more, you know, electric-powered central heating and the likes. Um, but if you look at it on a quarter-by-quarter basis, the average price for a megawatt hour of power in the final quarter of the year was 185 euro, which is down. 17% on the same time the previous year when it was 223. So it kind of strikes me that sometimes Michelle that there's it's that classic thing of lies damned lies and statistics that there's there's always some ways that you can present the the wholesale mm-hmm. figures and go up ah, prices coming down should be passed on to consumers and then if you look at it by a different metric it's still going up by quite a deal and it's very difficult to understand then how you could possibly expect a cut. Yes, I mean, you have seen I suppose the wholesale price come down but you have to factor in when did companies actually buy their gas in the first place. But if you look, uh, the CSO had their figures out last week uh, looking at inflation. And even though it is coming down slightly in terms of energy, if you look at the difference year on year, it's, you know, it's multiples of what it was in January. And then, and we spoke about targeting, if you look at households and households who spend the cost of energy in terms of their disposable income, so that the income that they have left after tax or social welfare, mm. etc. It's those households we spoke about. So that bottom 20%, they spend nearly half of their disposable income is taken up by energy. Yeah. That's before you get to food or anything else. So any increase in energy prices is going to eat up their disposable income. They don't have financial buffers. They don't have savings they can rely on. And, and that's why when government takes decisions uh, around this, whether it's looking at a windfall energy tax uh, or whether it's looking at what sort of supports you give to people, income supports, you give it to those who need it the most. And if all of the evidence is showing you it's that 20% of the population who need it, then surely that's where the money should go, not to people who really don't need it, who don't need an electricity bill and credit. 
you know, uh, that's that's the reality. You I, have some people who will have an electricity bill in credit if they get it this month and next month. And you'll have other households who are in arrears, who are struggling to even put food on the table. I would like to meet some of the households that don't need electricity credit. And I would like to have some discussions with them about how exactly they're managing it. Um, that story on the front page of the Mail on Sunday about the age limit on mental health medicines being illegal um, is something that I do want to get to. But I have to take a commercial break. So we're going to come back with discussions on that. Uh, and we're going to talk to UNICEF about the human impact of a year of war in Ukraine uh, when we're back with Peter and Michelle after this. Uh, we're also joined now on the line by Damien Rance, who is the Chief of Communications and Advocacy uh, in the Ukraine for UNICEF. Of course, there is a lot of coverage across today's papers about the forthcoming anniversary of the uh, the launch of Russia's invasion. That was the 24th of February, which is a year ago this coming Friday. Um, Damien, you are on the ground uh, in Kiev. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning on the record. Um, we might just generally ask you for your reflections about what the last 12 months have meant uh, for the people of Kiev and what the impact of, of a year of war has been for them. I mean, you're essentially asking about the impact on children in Ukraine. It has, has been absolutely immense over the last year. The, the, the children of Ukraine have endured 365 days of, of violence, of, of trauma, loss, destruction and, and displacement since that war began in, on the 24th of February in, in 2022. So the, the country has roughly between 7.1 and 7.8 million children, and, and all of those children, every one of them, have been robbed of 365 days of play, of, of school memories, and, and of time with friends and family. And, and really what that's meant is that those 365 days of of children spending their birthdays huddled in, in bomb shelters. I'm currently in a bomb shelter, actually, just in case there's an interruption to this interview. But it also means that they're not at home playing with their, with their families, with their friends. 600, 365 days of children having to adapt to a, a life other than the normalcy. Uh, they're not able to play with their friends at the local playground anymore. It's 365 days of children interacting wherever possible with their classmates and teachers through a screen rather than in a safe and, and warm classroom. It, it's 365 days of children hoping that their life will return soon to normalcy. And, and if I could just give you an example, sure. I spoke to a child about one and a half weeks ago in, in Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine. His name was Bodan. He was eight or nine years old. And uh, he was telling me what he wanted to tell me uh, was that he could differentiate between incoming and outgoing uh, bombs, artillery rounds, and he could also distinguish between different types of weapons being fired. And, and this is from his close proximity where he used to live, much closer to the front line and, and newly accessible uh, government-controlled areas. So the fact that a child who's eight years old is telling me that he can distinguish between different types of, of munitions and different types of weapons being used shows you just what an abnormal situation this is for children at the moment and, and their childhood has essentially been taken taken from them. Um, that's a really devastating analysis that, that that's the reality that an eight-year-old is now dealing with. Um, and it, it sort of renders this next question moot, but I, I suppose um, just for the benefit of people who, who may almost have forgotten or may have become almost blasé about the circumstances on the ground, the very fact that you're speaking to us from a bomb shelter, this is an ongoing reality that, that the, although the war may to some degree have reached a bit of a stalemate, that this is still an ongoing threat to people's lives on an everyday basis. I mean, there, there are still significant attacks on infrastructure, civilian energy infrastructure in particular across Ukraine. 
Uh, and uh, as I said, an alarm could go off at any minute. So that's why I decided to do this this interview from the, from the shelter. Uh, and and this has a significant impact on on children's lives. And and just to give you an you know a sort of feel for what that means is, uh, you know, about two thirds of children uh, in this country actually face a barrier accessing education. Uh, at the start of the war, we thought that after two years of COVID, uh, we, we had measures in place to help you know, with online schooling to mitigate some of the impact that we've seen with, you know, over 2,000 schools have been damaged and destroyed primarily by explosive weapons. And so children can't physically access schools. But to mitigate that, we thought we could rely on online schooling. With these attacks on energy infrastructure that have been going on since the beginning of October, internet connectivity and electricity is completely unreliable. So what UNICEF is doing is supporting education in whatever form it can take because often there is no physical school to attend or it's too dangerous to have so many children gathered in one place to attend school. Uh, and uh, and so we're supporting informal education where parents are just buying textbooks or teaching them by candlelight at home or having their older brother or sister talk you know talk them through some of the some of the curriculum that they're, they're trying mm-hmm. to, to, to learn from. So there really is a significant barrier to education and the constant ongoing and, and attacks uh, are a significant part of that. And, and, and that really, it's, it, it really is a looming education crisis on top of the other child protection crisis mm. that I was talking about because it affects, an, it affects an entire cohort, a generation of children. Every child in Ukraine is, is affected almost. And, and it's really something that if we don't address now, um, it, 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 it going to leave an entire generation lacking that uh, innate potential uh, that, that we should otherwise be tapping into. Um, you can't really hit the pause button on learning. Otherwise, it, it is a generation or a cohort of children that, are, that have lost that, that opportunity. Um, we will leave it there. Um, sobering stuff. Thank you for joining us this morning uh, live from Kiev. Damien Rance, who's Chief of Communications and Advocacy uh, at UNICEF uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Damien, thank you. Um, that's really really um, shaking me a little bit uh, just to say before I forget by the way on Talking History tonight on News Talk uh, here on News Talk from 7 to 8 the programme is looking at the history of Ukraine uh, exploring questions of identity and the roots of the ongoing conflict and also to let you know um, that there is a big gig uh, being organised by the singer Mary Coughlin who's decided to organise a fundraiser uh, for a Waterford woman uh, Anna Rourke who's travelled to Turkey uh, to help those who have been left homeless as a result of the earthquake crisis there. That big gig takes place next Saturday, February 25th in Leisureland, Salt Hill, Galway at 7 o'clock. It includes acts such as Mundy, Keela, Sharon Shannon, Francis Black and many, many more. Uh, tickets are at theroshindove.net and this is galway.ie so do support that if you can. Um, still joined in the studio by uh, Michelle Murphy and Peter Leonard to discuss the stories in the papers. Um, Michelle, before we move on, um, there is quite a lot understandably written uh, about the anniversary of the, the war in Ukraine. Anything that jumps out for you? There is and I suppose what jumps out for me in the Julianne Cora is a number of stories in the, the Sunday Times and one that really jumps out just given what we've heard there uh, from UNICEF about children about the, um, uh, Christina a UK, Ukrainian refugee who came here last year and she gave birth to her son Lucan in, in April so Lucan is nearly a year now living in Ireland you know she never expected to be here she wants to go home I mean she says here which is they had his room ready they had the buggy everything was ready she'd flee she's free to Poland to come to Ireland. I think that and then juxtapose that suppose then with the story from Paul uh, Nyland, who's 
from Dublin, but living in Kiev. And, you know, he says he's not going anywhere. He's not coming, you know, he's not coming back to Ireland. He's staying in Kiev. And I think just the end of that piece when he talks about, um, for me, you know, the not going anywhere, but also that, um, you know, he sees Ukraine as joining the European Union. That's going to be a glorious period for Ukraine. He's going to stay, stay in Kiev because he has things to do here and he wants to he wants to enjoy being witness to Ukraine join the European Union. So I just think that the issue of children, the impact it has had on children is just enormous. And just that juxtaposition with the you know, that young baby being born here, mm. you know, far away from home. But you know, hopefully he'll be moving back to his home because that's where Christina, his mum, sees his home. And then the situation of Paul living in Kiev and wanting to bear witness to the what he says is the next period of Ukraine's future joining the European Union. Yeah, uh, That piece on page 8 of the Sunday Times as well inside Zelensky's bunker is one that jumped out for me as well. Worth picking up if anyone's got the papers uh, within arm's reach over the next coming hours. Um, I did say that I wanted to discuss the story in the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Um, teenagers over the age of 16 and adults with mental illnesses being denied free medication because the state has refused to correct defective legislation uh, very handy when we've got a barrister among our panellists oh, wow. to sort of run the rule over this so no pressure yeah, uh, no Peter pressure, Leonard um, try and give us I- in as in as approachable a way as you can well, uh, on 11.50 on a Sunday morning exactly what is at play okay, in a nutshell in a nutshell I think first of all uh, top chem- commendation to Michael O'Farrell who's the investigations editor of the Mail on Sunday he's put in a big shift here and a very interesting article uh, now it seems it's based on information that was received from a man called called uh, Shane Corr, mm. who's a Department of Health whistleblower, and he's uh, engaged with, with the newspaper and has given them some information. Mm. So this goes back to 1970, and at the time, uh, the health minister was one Erskine Childers, a former president of Ireland, mm. the late Erskine Childers. Uh, and the 1970 Health Act authorised the minister to, to introduce you know schemes under the Act. And one of those schemes was in relation to mental illness. And a cut-off point of 16 years was provided in relation to that. And that operated by the Department of Health. So what effectively that meant that children who are suffering with mental illnesses um, were entitled to free medication up to the age of 16 and thereafter they had to pay for the, okay. the medication themselves. And that, that um, was the case from the introduction of the scheme from, the, from, the, back from in 1970 on. Okay. Yeah. So ni- in 2012 uh, Maura Whelan was then Attorney General and she was asked to advise on this following a, a query from the Ombudsman, Ombudsman's office. Uh, so she looked at this and she looked at it in the context of the Equal Status Act of 2000 and she said that this isn't legally sound at all. Um, and that so, from no the year, so from the year 2000, under the Equal Status Act, it would have been, in her eyes, illegal to discriminate between under 16s and over 16s. Well, she hasn't said it's illegal. She hasn't said it's illegal. And okay. that's where I suppose where we start okay, dancing on right. pinheads, uh, us as people down in the law library. But what she said was that it wasn't legally sound. So okay. when the government did this and said, look, this is the law. And, you know, if a question was raised and the politician came back yeah. and said, oh, no, the 1970 Act said you can't give it. You can't give free medical care to over 16s who are mm. suffering with long term mental illness. Yeah. Um, that, that wasn't a legally sound argument. So the government gets this advice and, you know, the role of the Attorney General is to advise uh, the state in relation to legal matters. She produced this advice saying, no, you cannot do that. Uh, you know, this this isn't legally sound. And then it's a matter for the government to give effect to that yeah. situation. So effectively then what Maura Whelan would be advising is that were someone to take action against the state saying that it's not fair that they are being charged for their medicine while someone under 16 is getting it for free, that the state would find it 
it very difficult to defend that case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they have the evidence, you know, so they should act on that. And there is an obligation to comply with the, with the information and advice that's given by the Attorney General's office. Now, ultimately, it comes down to the department themselves and, you know, certain advice comes and then it's not acted upon. It's not that it's ignored. It's not that it's rejected. It might not have been acted upon, but mm. like that's 10 years ago that that advice came out. Um, so, I mean, I think this this piece of investigative journalism from the mail is, is very significant and uh, it has highlighted an issue that the government is going to have to address, I think. Uh, well, th- there is one uh, suggestion there that the government did try to address it through fairly... Um low profile means if you like um, to avoid having to pay compensation says the mail um, the government secretly added a provision to a largely unrelated bill uh, to limit LTI scheme entitlements only to medicine for listed illnesses and therefore then once the statute of limitation passed to close the door to potential claims relating to that issue so at some point they tried to remedy the issue in part so by, by making a very in, secretive change to the law. Yeah, in back rooms this was obviously being discussed I mean, which I think is problematic for the government as well. So they, they were aware of this and they didn't act on it. Of course they're aware of it. Yeah. They received the, vice, the advice from the Attorney General. Yeah, I think that is problematic if somebody was to take a challenge in relation to that because, um, but, but at the end of the day it was a scheme that was put in place by the Minister um, it wasn't a solid. It wasn't on solid legal footing. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was illegal. Okay. However, when that information has come out, it it is now incumbent, I think, on the government to give effect to that and to change the situation. Whether people can make retros- retrospective claims in relation to that, I don't know. That would have to be looked at. Broadly speaking, statute of limitations would only be is it six or seven six years? Six years. So, six so it'd yeah. be very difficult then at this juncture if someone realised that they would have been able to claim that for free. It's very difficult at this point to go. Yeah, but it could go back remedy. six years. Um, yeah, potentially yeah. so. Um, Michelle, I, I, hopefully um, Peter's done a pretty good job of trying to impart for, for the benefit of our listeners exactly what, what's at stake here. I think he's done a, a good job. Um, your, your analysis, therefore, of the, the state's actions in the course of all of this? I think Peter's done an excellent job. I think, you know, it's <laughs> probably just, you know, on top of the nursing homes issue, on top of, you know, all we've seen in terms of CAMs and the, you know, the waiting list of young people who need support for mental health issues. It's, you know, it's a real headache for government. What I find interesting is that the quote from the department at the end of the piece, they were asked, um, you know, uh, for its response. And they said their staunch care reform programme was viewing how current eligibility and entitlement policies align with population needs. To me, that's interesting because we're in the process of rolling out the regional health areas where our health services are supposed to be delivered to people in the regions based on the needs of that population, based on the age profile, etc, etc. And I, you know, I wouldn't be confident, mm. given what we've seen in the past number of weeks, that that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be particularly challenging for them. I do think, you know, Slanchicare seems to have stalled. The investment required hasn't been what it needs to be. And I suppose the question has to be asked. I mean, where is the person, where is the child, a citizen in the middle of all this? If you're in need of, you know, health care, care for your mental health, any kind of illness, you know, where are you in this when there's legal advice saying, well, you know, once you reach 17, you're no longer entitled to this medicine, for example, or if you're on a waiting list, well, you're going to have to wait for 15 to 18 months. If you're in a nursing home, you're going to be charged for things that maybe you shouldn't be charged for. I think there's a lot of questions to be answered. And as Peter pointed out, you know, this shouldn't be done in back rooms and places. Mm. This, You know, we should be transparent about this and open about it and what kind of health service we are going to deliver for people. Um, I see some uh, legislation that I've just managed to dig it up very quickly that was uh, passed by the previous government in 2013. So legislation about outpatient charges and they inserted a small clause into that which seems to have changed the rules for exactly who was entitled to this medicine. So it was changed under the law but in a fairly uh, low profile way and I suspect that 
might not be the last that we hear uh, about all of this. Peter Leonard, uh, Michelle Murphy, thank you both very much for reviewing the papers. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.